Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Wow. I get to do this. Welcome. Good afternoon and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. So I'm Evelyn Dilsaver. I'm chair of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors. I'm a former president and CEO of Charles Schwab Investment Management and your moderator for today's program. So it's now my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker. And we're excited because Rob has spoken here a couple of times before, and the audience has just really enjoyed his talk because he's so down to earth. Uh, Rob Kaplan is president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas and former professor and associate dean at Harvard Business School. A little background, he served as the 13th president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas since 2015. He represents the 11th Federal Reserve District on the Federal Open Market Committee and the formulation of U.S. monetary policy. And you oversee 1,200 employees. And remind me again the states that you cover? Uh, Texas, northern Louisiana, and southern New Mexico. Okay, good. And then we'll get into that a little bit later in the discussion. He was previously the Martin Marshall Professor of Management Practice and a Senior Associate Dean at Harvard Business School. He's written several books, including What You Really Need to Lead. And I think the last time you spoke was on that book. The Power of Thinking and Acting Like an Owner and What You're Really Meant to Do, which is a roadmap for reaching your potential. And then prior to joining Harvard in 06, he was vice chair at Goldman Sachs with global responsibility for investment banking and investment management divisions, became a partner in 1990 and served as co-chair of the firm's partnership committee. Aren't you tired? (laughs) I am. Yeah, you are. (laughs) So um, then he became a senior director at the firm after 23 years. He also has a tremendous outreach from a philanthropic point of view. He serves as chairman of Project ALS, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, and co-chair of the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation. And we're lucky to have Bill Draper here and his daughter and several members of the team which is a global venture philanthropy firm that invests in developing nonprofit enterprises dedicated to addressing social issues. So, and then finally, you're a board member of Harvard Medical School. So why don't we go ahead and get into the conversation now? And uh, we're going to talk about it in terms of the national economy, the global economy, monetary policy versus fiscal policy, and then down into the regional economic trade information. Welcome um, your questions. You've got the cards on, the, on your chairs that you can write questions, and I'll feed them into the questions that I already have prepared for Mr. Kaplan. So the first one, I'm sure a lot of people are going to know, what is your assessment of our U.S. economy today? And what are the signals that we should be looking for since everybody's been preparing for a recession or a slight decline? What are those signals? Yeah, I'd say the current economy, the way I'd characterize it is mixed. Um, Global growth is decelerating. Uh, Manufacturing is weaker than it's been in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, and business investment is also very sluggish. Probably all three of those things are, are, are as a result of trade tensions, escalating trade uncertainty. Um, the consumer in the United States, though, is strong. That's 70% of the economy. Household balance sheets are in pretty good shape. Job market is, is tight. Uh, 
And so uh, at the Dallas Fed, our view is we're going to grow about 2% this year in the United States. But it, but we grew 2.5% in the first half of the year. So for us to grow 2% this year means growth decelerating. We're going to grow about 1.6%, 1.7%, probably 1.6% in the second half of the year. The United States grew about 2.5% last year. So uh, uh, I'm concerned that weakness in global growth, manufacturing, and business investment may intensify. It'll spread to other parts of the economy and ultimately will affect consumer confidence. That doesn't need to happen, but that's what I'm watching for. And I think we're kind of in a, in a fragile period here where the jury's out on which way we're going to go. And at the Fed, in my job, I'm trying to do what I can to, uh, to try to uh, make sure we uh, avert a more severe slowdown. Right, right. And so the Feds right now are buying back, well, the, you're building up your reserves then, to be able to help these banks and short-term lending. Well, right? actually, let me, so let me separate. There's two things going on. One's about monetary policy and that we've lowered the rate in July, the Fed funds rate, and we lowered it in September. It's now one and three quarters to 2%. Mm-hmm. On the announcement we've just made regarding our balance sheet, it really isn't related to uh, monetary policy. It was intended okay. to just get a little bit more liquidity into the system. Why? The Fed's been running down its balance sheet. Uh, this may sound technical to a lot of people. We've had a, we had started with a four and a half trillion dollar balance sheet. We've been running it down. And because of uh, record treasury issuance by the U.S. government, as well as tax payments, uh, probably changes in regulation, I think we've come to the conclusion that the system needs more reserves than what we have. Uh, meaning every time the U.S. Treasury issues debt, takes reserves out of the system. Somebody's got to buy these bonds. And, uh, and so we've concluded that we, needed, we need to grow the balance sheet uh, at least for the next several months. And also we've announced this morning a standing repo facility so we can make sure that overnight lending markets have plenty of liquidity. But that's a technical – I'd view both as a technical adjustment away from our views on the economy and monetary policy. Yep. So um, for those in the audience who don't know the difference between monetary and fiscal policy, could you explain that? Yeah. And then who has responsibility for that? Okay, I will. So, so uh, the, the Fed uh, – does what's called monetary policy. And that's predominantly, we adjust the short-term interest rate. That's the only rate we adjust, by the way, just the short-term interest rate. It's called the Fed funds rate. Now, the short end of the treasury curve tends to follow whatever adjustment we make. And then we can use our balance sheet in addition, and we have in the past, although we're not right now, to buy securities particularly along the treasury market or mortgage-backed securities market, and we did that in size in the aftermath of the Great Recession to borrow longer-term borrowing costs and also to stimulate the economy. Both those things are called monetary policy. We also, by the way, supervise the banks in the United States, and we, uh, we, we uh, administer regula- regulation of the big banks, do the stress tests and those kinds of things. We also oversee all payments in the United States. Uh, if you do a wire transfer, that's, that's a Fed that's overseeing that. Uh, fiscal policy, on the other hand, is the things you think about t- uh, government spending, Mm-hmm. tax cuts. Uh, and then there's a whole area, which I think is, is, is more significant today than ever before, which I'd call structural reforms, immigration, 
education reforms, uh, a lot of things that affect the structure of the economy, all those are in the purview away from the Fed, and you'd probably put those under the heading of broader government policy and fiscal policy. Right, right. So um, you can't do it alone from a monetary policy point no. of view. No, and if you try, you're going to see some of the things we're seeing right now. Right now, right. Yeah. So what fiscal policies would you want to see than from our government. So to answer that, so to answer it, that yeah. question, and I'll do this quickly, there are four big drivers uh, that I spent a lot of time talking about. Uh, and again, I'm, a, I'm not a PhD economist. I'm a business person. And so as a business person, you tend more to look at drivers. And those four big drivers are the U.S. population is aging. I wish it weren't, uh, but it is, which means workforce growth is slowing. Yep. GDP growth in, in a country is made up of growth in the workforce plus growth in productivity. And we know our workforce growth is slowing. People are working much longer, but they're still aging out of the workforce. So that's one development. Second big development is productivity. Uh, You'd hope might offset that. And our productivity growth in the United States is sluggish. It's the second big development, despite historic levels of technology investment and technology-enabled disruption. And we think at the Dallas Fed, the big reason why tech, uh, why um, uh, productivity sluggish is we rank 25th out of 35 industrialized nations in math, science, and reading. If we could improve even our children's literacy, we think we would have higher productivity. And our skills training, we, we beefed up skills training in the United States. And I'm talking about IT specialists, registered nurses, automotive technicians, 20, 25 different professions which you go to junior college for, or you could do uh, in many cases in high school, we haven't invested enough in that. And we've got, over, we believe, over a million skilled jobs in the United States that are open, that need skills training, and we're lagging. So that's the second big driver of why GDP growth is sluggish. And the last two, uh, if you knew you were a- had an aging society and you were lagging in skills and education, third big uh, driver is globalization. Globalization's been a big opportunity for the United States to grow faster. Uh, and what I mean by globalization, immigration, mm-hmm. uh, obviously it's a sensitive subject, but appropriate immigration and trade. And right now, uh, we've got a lot of controversy, I don't need to tell you, on immigration. And I also didn't need to tell you there's uh, sand in the gears of global trade. Global trade is weakening. And so we're not getting the benefit of that. But the big concern I have is um, today the narrative in the United States is if you're losing your job, it's probably due to globalization. Either maybe an immigrant took your job or reduced your wages or a bad trade deal. We think that might have been true 15 years ago. Today, if your job's being disrupted or eliminated, it's more likely due to technology or technology-enabled disruption going on in the United States. And this is particularly affecting people that have a high school education or lower, which, by the way, is 46 million workers out of 160 million person workforce. It's it's a big deal. And a lot of those workers are finding their job restructured or eliminated and their incomes over their career not increasing but declining. And then the last big driver, unfortunately, is none of this would matter so much 
if we weren't so highly leveraged at the federal government level. But we're historically highly leveraged at the federal government level. Debt held by the public is about 77% of GDP, and the present value of unfunded entitlements is now up to $59 trillion. When I started in this job just four years ago, the number was about $45, $46 trillion. So it's going like this. And so in a society that is aging, if we continue to grow at one and three quarters and 2%, we're getting more leveraged and just putting more burden on our kids and our grandkids to meet these future obligations. Those are the four big drivers. The one thing they all four have in common, almost none of them have anything to do with monetary policy. So my job is monetary policy, but I also think, and we've got to make good decisions and make good monetary policy decisions, but I also believe strongly my job is to call out these issues and help inform policymakers on both sides of the aisle, elected and appointed, because we've, we can make changes to grow faster, but we've got to frame and diagnose these issues accurately. And right now, we think we're misdiagnosing in this country and maybe if we get if we get the diagnosis wrong, we're going to make poor policy decisions. Right, right. Let me unpack some of these things you've said because they're they're really important. So um, leverage. I've heard some economists say, "Well, let's just issue more debt." Right? They don't really worry about it so much. What are you, what's your view on that? So um, there's three sectors in the United States. When you look at debt, there's a household sector, and I mentioned earlier. The, the, the good news in all this is since the Great Recession, households have actually deleveraged. Right. And even with all the student debt and, and debt out there, household balance sheets are in better shape than they were 10 years ago. And we've got a tight job market. So that's part one. Second sector you look at is the corporate sector. And unfortunately, the corporate sector is historically highly leveraged today. But the financial sector is deleveraged. Yep. And so I'm, I'm worried about the corporate sector and we're watching it. But I don't think it's a systemic risk. The third sector, as we just talked about, is the government sector, and we just went through that. And here's the issue. A lot of people in this country, and, or some believe, we can keep growing our leverage, and you know, deficits are now going to exceed trillion dollars, and in a downturn, they're going to far exceed a trillion dollars a year. Uh, but all that base on, rests on the, the key assumption that the dollar will remain the world's reserve currency. And what I mean by that, people have to invest in dollars. So if you're, uh, if you're allocating assets around the world, you are overweighting to dollars. So that allows the United States, despite this debt growth, to finance our debt at relatively low rates. Uh, and the danger is through technology, digitization, other changes, if in the next 20, 25 years we're not the world's reserve currency, uh, we're going to have a problem. And we're not going to be able to, we're going to have to have more discipline. So we've been saying at the Dallas Fed, we need to, uh, while times are good, uh, try to either A, grow faster and moderate some of this debt growth. You're not going to reduce debt growth, but moderate it uh, because we're relying very heavily right now on the assumption, presumption, that the U.S. will always be the place that people have to buy our debt. And that's a dangerous Mm -hmm. thing to do. Very dangerous. I mean, most corporations have to look at uh, what are the basic assumptions that we make that we're at risk, and we haven't done that. Well, and so the well, except for you guys, right? Well, the difference between the government and a company is uh, government. We can actually print money. Yeah, right. We can monetize the debt, but it has ramifications. Right. Uh, and some people are actually saying that's what we should do, but that's that's the issue. 
Right. We, exactly. we haven't had fiscal discipline here, even though uh, we just uh, we were talking about this last night at the Dallas Fed. In 2000, we're running a balanced budget in the United States. I mean, people forget that. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago. It wasn't and that long so we ago. built up a lot of this debt through wars, tax cuts, spending, other other activities, and our potential GDP growth is declining because of demographics, and we're not doing enough to improve productivity because we think because of education. Right. So let's unpack that piece on the education. Um, the technology whether you consider it blockchain or artificial intelligence that many corporations are now starting to employ in their operations yeah. will of course impact our employees in the long term. Yeah. Uh, what are you doing or what are you recommending that we do at the corporate level to help our employees get over this hump? I mean, we're not investing in the skilled labor that we need today, right? So the, so the good news is about technology and technology enabled disruption is if you look at almost any industry, and I still read, I was trained, I was former business person, I read corporate earnings reports, I still do it. Almost every industry you look at is dramatically more productive today than it was 10 years ago. So it's not that these technology investments aren't making great uh, improvements. The issue is we measure productivity workforce-wide, okay? So I'm not worried about companies adapting to technology, and I'm probably not even that worried about their employees and them investing in it. What's happening, though, is if you've got a college education, uh, all the statistics we look at show that you're probably seeing technology having a positive effect on your career productivity and your earnings are improving. Again, back to the group, if you have a high school education, though, or less, that's the issue, in that you're increasingly seeing your job either restructured or eliminated. Some people are being retrained right. by the company, but many are not. Are not uh, either they're not appropriate for retraining or they, they, they can't get retrained for another job. So they've got to go out. You'll find another job. Those people will find another job in this labor market, but they'll probably find their income go from here to here. Think of the call center worker that makes $55,000 a year today with benefits. That job isn't going to exist five years from now. So what do you do if you're 45 years old, you're one of those workers? It's easy to say, go get retrained, but it's not so easy to go do when you're in your mid to late 40s and you've got a family and everything else. And so um, we think it, the country, the most important thing we can do is first improve uh, math, science, and reading, particularly children's literacy. Uh, everything I look at shows that too many kids uh, start first grade behind reading level, grade level. And our studies show that if you start first grade behind grade level, you never catch up. And you're going to be less productive your whole career. And then the other part of it, so I, I've said if you're going to spend a dollar on education, I'd start zero to five, expand pre-K, improve pre-K including in Texas, by the way, but nationwide. And then the other place, second dollar I'd spend, is at the other end, I would beef up dramatically skills training. And a lot of kids are going to college today and not graduating even in six years. And some percentage of them might have been better off going for skills training, getting a middle-class bedrock, maybe going and finishing college after that. But we've got to raise awareness and beef up and do a lot to help entice uh, and make kids aware that there are great middle-class jobs that make a lot of money uh, that are open, 
but you you need a certificate. You need to go for skills training. Right. And there's a lot of pressure today for those kids to go on to college, regardless of whether uh, it's it's a good fit for them or not, or whether there's a job at the end of the yeah. four or six years. So this is right? why I'm not a big fan, and, and I try to stay away from these issues, but the idea, let's just make college free for everyone. What we're finding is a meaningful percentage of kids today or young people just aren't ready and they're not finishing. They're not, they're not finishing six and seven and eight years and, and they're ringing up a fair amount of debt. And we think uh, an alternative career path uh, is skills training and we're beefing it up in many junior colleges and high schools around the country. But if, if technology and technology enabled disruption is going like this, we're beefing up skills training kind of like this, yeah. and the gap is going like that. That's the problem. Yep. And by the way, a lot of it doesn't take government money. It takes businesses are very glad to partner with junior colleges, but it takes leadership locally to form these partnerships. And that's one of the things we actually work on at the Dallas Fed in the state of Texas all throughout the state. Right. Could you talk about that? Because I know you've been involved with, it's called Europe. Is that- Europe I'm involved with, right. but we also do at the Dallas Fed, we, we work on, uh, we, we are a convener. Uh, maybe what, what does the Fed do well? One of the things we can do in Texas is be the convener of choice to get business people, junior colleges, uh, workforce development boards together and form partnerships. And we do that actively through the state. The other thing we do is spend a lot of time on focusing on areas of the state where there's no Wi-Fi and getting little partnerships together between nonprofits and the mayor and businesses to fund Wi-Fi so that the kids in school can have access to Wi-Fi so they can improve their literacy. It doesn't cost that much money, and almost all of it's paid for by local businesses, but somebody needs to convene these partnerships. And the reason we're not making more progress in the nation on these things is I've learned this can't be legislated from D.C. It's got to be done locally. You right. need local leadership. And this is why we're so uneven in the United States in solving this problem. How many other uh, Fed presidents share your view? Many of them. And we, so so we, we compare notes all through the system. We've got a great programs in the city of Boston, Philadelphia. A number of the other Fed presidents are actively involved in this. Um, and we we share what we're doing. We borrow. We're, there was a great accelerator program in the city of Boston. We're we're now going to adopt that in uh, in Dallas and in Texas. But the reason it's such a high priority in the state of Texas, uh, U.S. lags the world. Texas lags the rest of the country. We are we rank uh, uh, surprisingly poorly, uh, and our fastest growing demographic groups really lag substantially on early childhood literacy. So it's a natural uh, priority for the Dallas Fed. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, along those lines, uh, your fastest growing population, I would think, is uh, the immigrant population, right? Well, it's blacks and Hispanics. And, blacks and, and Hispanics. for many of them, are, they're citizens. Wow. Some, some, yes, are immigrants, but many of them are citizens of the United States. But we find in particular, the big surprise since I took this job is how much the Hispanic population, not just in Texas, but in the United States, lags in terms of early childhood literacy, high school graduation rates, right. and certainly college graduation rates. And if we don't address that issue, 
um, we're just going to have lower productivity growth, not only in Texas, but in the United States. Right. So we've, we can, but the good news is we can address it, but it's got to start zero to five. Right, right. And I think, you know, so again, we're talking about immigration policy a little bit. So what's really happening at the border of Texas? On immigration. I mean, so here's, you hear the news, right? Here's the interesting thing. There's a lot of misconceptions about immigration. So first of all, I'll just throw out a statistic. I mentioned workforce growth is uh, slowing because of aging. It's our estimate at the Dallas Fed that, that one half of all workforce growth, one half of all workforce growth in the United States over the last 20 years is immigrants and their children. And if you look forward in the next 20 years, we think immigrants are likely to make up closer to 100% of workforce growth. How do I know that? Because we know that native born workforce growth is going to be negative. All right. And so, uh, what's the migration from Mexico of Mexican citizens to the United States over the last years, as best as we can tell and talking to customs and border patrol, we think the net migration is in the neighborhood of zero. Okay, so the recent discussions, though, have been about another topic, Central American migration going up through Mexico. And this is a very real problem. Uh, And we talk a lot, meet with Customs and Border Patrol along the border regularly. And this has been a big challenge in terms of, uh, you know, I don't need to even repeat all the things that have been in the news. But those are coming. Those people are coming from Central America. Our, our comment and our research at the Dallas Fed is, let's set aside the political parts of this. We think the U.S. would be well served to restructure its immigration system to be more employer-based and skill-based, much like Canada. Canada has this kind of system. What do I mean? You go out and interview businesses all through the United States. You see what the open jobs are, and you backward integrate to help shape who, uh, your immigration policies. And people on both sides of the aisle we talk to have embraced this. The, the second comment that would make, if you think you're going to cut immigration, legal immigration in the United States, and there have been some proposals to, for example, cut it in half, and you think you're going to at the same time grow GDP, those two things do not go together. <laughs> they are diametrically opposed. Now, that's a choice we could make to reduce legal immigration, but, but, but don't kid yourself that it isn't going to mean lower GDP growth. You can make that decision, but you better hope you've got improvements in productivity to offset it, uh, and you've got to deal with the fact if we make that choice and we grow more slowly, we're getting more leveraged every single day because debt is growing faster, faster. than GDP is. Right. And we feel it here in Silicon Valley with the skilled workers. And certainly in Napa and Sonoma and our wine country regions, they feel it tremendously. It is amazing. We did a little study just in the state of Texas, and then we looked nationwide. The percentage of skilled jobs that are filled by immigrants in, the, in Texas and in the country. And I, I hadn't realized how significant it is. Listen, what made, what are one of the, one of the things that made America, many things have made America a great country, but one of the things we had a, we've had a distinctive competence at is attracting people from around the world, educating them, and they become leaders here. We've been a magnet for talent. My grandparents were not born here. They were born, you know, in another country. And this has been one of the distinctive competencies that have allowed the United States to grow faster and outperform countries like Germany and Japan that have not been receptive culturally to immigration. And our fear is if we lose that competence, 
means we're going to grow more slowly and we're not going to be as outstanding as we've been. So do we, do you feel we have uh, an opportunity to become like Japan in terms of their both, not only negative growth rates, but their population is aging. They don't have enough young people coming up. They've got disinflation rather inflation. Yeah. Are we going to become Japan? So I mentioned the growth in the United States is about one and three quarters to 2% right now. We think potential growth, meaning if we're working on all cylinders in the U.S., not overheating, but not underperforming, that's potential. One and three quarters to two. We think potential growth in Japan is half, a little bit like something like half of 1%, maybe lower. So I would say Japan is exhibit A for a country that's more inwardly focused, not receptive to... Uh, to immigration. Now, even Japan, and I used to live there in my business career for four or five years, they've got a very substantial now guest worker program, and they've had a very substantial initiative to get women increasingly into the workforce to grow the workforce. Even with that, they're growing very slowly. But yeah, Japan is a cautionary tale of of what you do if you're not open to uh, taking people from outside your country. Right. So let's move on to the global economy. And what do you believe are the current challenges that are facing both advanced economies and uh, emerging so, economies? So all the problems I just went through, well, some of the problems. Aging demographics is a problem in Europe. It's a problem in China, by the way, big problem in China because of the one-child one policy. They have, they have an aging workforce. And, and so uh, demographics is a problem worldwide. The thing that people have to realize is this trade uh, uh, uncertainty that we've got right now, it has a negative effect on the United States, but trade is less than directly 15% of GDP in the United States. But it's having a meaningful effect. It's 40% of German GDP. It's over 20% of Europe GDP. It's over 20% of Asian GDP. So if you, if I told you there's sand in the gears of global trade and it's weakening, uh, there's a pretty good bet that global growth is going to be decelerating. Mm-hmm. And it is. And that's what we're seeing. And that's probably the headline right now. And all that comment I would make, uh, something like 45% of S&P 500 uh, revenues comes from outside the United States. So I think the point of this is, if global growth is decelerating, and we're less than 5% of the world's population, and we've, we've got great competitive ability to sell around the world. If global growth is decelerating, we're not immune to it from it in the United States, and we're going to grow more slowly too. And that's, that's part of what we're seeing right now. And what are you seeing in the emerging markets? So who the, would you define as emerging markets? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, um, you know everything. Uh, I'd probably set China aside because it's – but, but they're included in emerging markets. Mexico's included in emerging markets. Uh, emerging market economies, many of them have better demographics, uh, and they've got emerging middle classes. And so they're big growth opportunities, and it's not an accident that most major companies uh, in this country, if they can – are globalized, including the one I worked at. When I started in my career in the early 80s, we were a domestic company. And by the time I left, over 50% of our revenues. But that's not unusual. And so there's great opportunity in the world uh, from integration and opening markets, uh, but that relies heavily on workforce flows, capital flows, and, uh, and obviously on trade. And so it's critical to all of our futures that we can can get this right. But right now, again, globalization has got a, uh, 
it's got a, it's the narrative about it is very negative and probably in some ways deserved because we haven't done enough to help people years ago make the adjustment when they were negatively affected by globalization. Uh, But now we're turning away from it. We're looking more inward. I don't need to tell you, UK is looking more inward and it just means slower growth. And we have to, we have, my job is not to make those choices or to make assumptions on what we ought to do, but it is to call out because we do a lot of work on this. If depending on the choices we make, we're going to grow more slowly and it's going to put a greater burden on our kids and our grandkids to meet all the obligations we have in terms of debt and entitlements. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. So some of the countries, well, China, for example, has been investing in a whole bunch of other economies uh, because of the control issue. What's your perspective on that, and how does that come into play? So China is extremely aggressive. Take Africa, for example. They are – take Latin America. They are being extremely aggressive, not only in making investments, but setting standards to their standards versus U.S. standards. Uh, they are uh, they are very forward looking in how they're thinking, and they are very aggressively investing globally. Uh, and I'll stay away from choices that have been made, but uh, obviously, up until a few years ago, there was a, a TPP Trans Pacific uh, Partnership, uh, which was an attempt to take to work with our allies to to compete. And oh, by the way. The trading relationship that we believe with Mexico, logistics and supply chains, had been allowing the U.S. to take share from Asia. So we're in a, we're in a global competition, mm-hmm. uh, and and this competition is going to last for the rest of our lives and into our kids' lives. Uh, but we're we're in we're in the early mid stages of this. This is going to go on for a very long time. So the challenge for the U.S. is how to make investments, improve our human capital, improve our productivity think globally, compete globally, because we're in a global competition with China. There's no doubt. No doubt. And I'm, uh, I actually serve on the board of uh, several companies, and we're seeing a lot of the Chinese companies coming into the United States and buying up um, U.S. companies, right? And they're going through vertical integration of a lot of our um, uh, manufacturing facilities. So I think it's going to be tough. So the only comment I'd make is uh, the one... Uh, a comment I've made publicly for the last couple of years. It's our, we do a lot of work. We're the largest exporting state in the country, Texas is. So we do a lot of work on trade and it's been our advice uh, that we should be segmenting our trade relationships in the United States. Uh, For example, the Northern hemisphere trade relationships, we've now finally done it, but we, we've been strong advocates. We need to get NAFTA USMCA done because those trade relationships are allowing the U.S. to be competitive and outperform Asia. Uh, we should be uh, working closely with our allies and so we can focus our attention on intellectual property, technology transfer, and the competition and issues with China, which we think are very real and very legitimate. The only other comment we've made is the least of the issues we'd highlight, at least working with our, our research, is the trade deficit. 
the trade deficit we don't think is the key issue facing the United States. We do think the level playing field and technology transfer and intellectual property rights, that's very critical, not to mention the security issues. We think those are very critical issues. But we've been advocating shore up Northern, North, uh, North America. America, shore up other parts of the world, and then direct your attention so we can fight that battle. So all the, uh, the press about uh, trade deficit, you're saying that's really not the issue, right? Well, and again, I've been at the Fed now for four years, and you can imagine when I first got there, one of the first things we talked about extensively, and I talked to economists. The good thing about the Fed, I talked to economists not only at the Dallas Fed, we have big research staff, the whole system, and any economist I can find who disagrees elsewhere in the world, I talk to. And no, you'll, you'll be hard-pressed to yeah. find economists who thinks the trade deficit by itself is the key issue. Um, in terms of whether it's good or bad for the United States. In fact, some will argue that trade deficits are appropriate and natural. Now, having an uneven playing field is a different matter. That's a different matter, But, But the deficit itself is not necessarily indicative that there's something unfair going on uh, and may not be the key thing. Okay. Um, Let's talk a little bit. We've talked a little bit about monetary policy, financial stability, the Fed's re- raised interest rates four times in 2018. Yes. So in your view, what's the appropriate path going forward? So d- d- just to just to give it a context, we went eight or nine years in the United States where the Fed funds rate was basically zero. Zero to 25, it's always in a range, and we set it within that range. So in the aftermath of the Great Recession from, say, 2008 until the end of 2015, the f- short rate in the United States was zero to 25. Okay. The first time we raised it after eight or nine years was in December of 2015. And then it went from 25 to 50. And so we've been uh, in, uh, working on an effort in the last several years to try to get a quote unquote more normal monetary policy. I mean, the crisis, we're past the crisis. We don't need emergency um, uh, levels of rates or emergency balance sheet activities. So we've been trying to get to a more, in the lingo, neutral level of interest rates. Neutral meaning the rate at which we're neither uh, uh, restricting the economy and also not overly stimulating the economy. And so we raised rates through 2018 to get the Fed funds rate to two and a quarter to two and a half. Uh, some might argue that the last uh, raise in December was one too many. That's possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have uh, put ourselves on pause in January of 19, since January of 19, we paused any activity. And then, as I mentioned, we lowered the rate in July and we lowered the rate in September. So we're now at one and three quarters to 2%. Historically low. And in my view, we're right now in the neighborhood of neutral, maybe a little accommodative. And I think given the slowing, that's probably appropriate. Uh, And from here, I've said publicly, you know, I've got an open mind on whether we need to whether we need to take any further action. And we'll just have to see how the economy unfolds. But I very much supported what we did in July and September to cut the rate uh, and get something a more accommodative stance of monetary policy, given the slowing that we're seeing mainly due to trade tensions. Right. And some of the questions from the audience are around the yield curve. Yes. It's an inverted yield curve. Yes. We're meaning the long term is uh, yep. lower than the short term yield. Could, so you talk about that? Yeah, I will. So, so here's what an inversion is. Inversion, just to define, is when actually the Fed funds rate is higher 
or some people look at the two-year, I personally look at the Fed funds rate, the one we said, it's higher than five-year rates and 10-year rates. That would be called an inversion. Naturally, you would naturally have the curve upwardly sloping. So why would the curve be inverted? Curve historically has been inverted, and the reason it was inverted, in my opinion, earlier this year, is op, uh, views about future growth are uh, much more pessimistic. I mean, the 10-year Treasury mm-hmm. rate, which is right now today about 175, um, th- that rate has come down since the fall of 2018 by literally 150 basis points. It was three and a quarter. Hard to believe. It was three and a quarter. In November of 18, it's now 175. Why the big drop? Pessimism about future growth. And I think primarily because of intensification of these trade tensions and these trade disputes, including, by the way, the threat against Mexico, even though it didn't happen. We think that had a, that had some effect and it caused businesses to put CapEx capital spending on hold. And we think you see that in the yield curve and it's also Global growth slowing has had some effect on our yield curve. So I was in the view, I mentioned the Fed funds rate was two and a quarter to two and a half to start the year. We had a a 10-year treasury below that. And my own view is that's something that we shouldn't allow to go on. Why? Because if financial intermediaries can't borrow short and lend long and make a spread, you're eventually going to have a severe tightening in financial conditions. So we've lowered the rate twice. We're now, as I said, 175 to 2. The 10-year treasury is around 175. So we have, we're moving toward a more normal, not there yet, more normally shaped curve. I think that's a healthier environment. And I think the curve also, for me, is a reality check that said the Fed funds rate setting was too tight in July and September. And that helped, one of the things that helped influence me to say we ought to lower it. Right. And a follow-up question to that, which I think you might have answered, which is, does the system really need more liquidity? And if things are tightening up, as you said, because you can't lend long or borrow short and lend long, well, so is that the liquidity issue? It, it, it's a little, it creates a little bit of issue, but the big issue, what's the big change uh, in the need for reserves and need for liquidity? The biggest change are tax payments you can predict. They're going to happen in the fall and they're going to happen in April. But the dramatic increase in, um, in Treasury issuance takes liquidity out of the system. And so uh, that, that, I think, is at the top of the list of reasons we need more liquidity. And the other thing that's going on, we have much tougher regulation on the banks now than we did eight or nine years ago. Much tougher stress test capital requirements. So banks are holding more reserves because we're requiring them to hold more reserves. And so they're not as willing to move, lend reserves around. And so there's frictions there. And that's another issue that we're coming to grips with and we have to deal with. But I think it's manageable. And I don't think it's indicative of a bigger, bigger economic problems. I think these are ultimately technical issues that uh, the Fed's got the capability to, to address. And I think these announcements which we've just made this morning will do that. Yeah. You, you know, you're describing more art than science to what you're trying to get done yeah. in, the, um, in your work there. That's why we have a big markets test with 500 people, <laughs> yeah. that this is all they do. And it's uh, uh, some of these uh, overnight funding markets are a little bit arcane. And because of the regulatory restrictions, uh, things you would, if regula- regulations requires the banks to hold more reserves, even if they have them to lend, doesn't mean they will lend them. And so we just have to take that into account when we're thinking about liquidity in the system. 
Well, I know uh, from experience when my kids started to buy a house how tough it was to get a loan from the banking industry. But do you see the opposite problem now with a lot of um, new banking upstarts coming in the play that we may be back in the situation again of relaxed lending with a housing bubble? So I am worried about more relaxed lending. The, The good news is we now have very tough stress testing and capital requirements on the big banks. So we've got a very good grip on what the leverage loans are of banks, and we can control that. To your point, what banks are doing more, though, now is they're originating these loans, and they're selling them into the non-bank financial system. Right, exactly. And now they're selling them into what are called uh, collateralized loan obligation structures, and then there's more to business development uh, corporations. Uh, We don't directly regulate those, but I can tell you I'm spending a lot of time and with my team watching how those develop. Uh, I currently, if you ask me right now, I, I don't think the financial system is over leveraged. The one thing I do worry about, I mentioned earlier, corporate debt is at a historically high level. Triple B debt is tripled. Leverage loans have doubled. The high yield issuance is dramatically increased. I don't think it's a systemic risk, meaning it's not like 08 when the lenders were over leveraged. Today, I think some of the borrowers are going to be over leveraged in a downturn. You'll have more failures. You'll have more defaults. I think it will be an amplifier of a downturn, um, but I don't think it's uh, it, it's not an extreme issue right now. But it is one that I've talked about. And many of us around the table at the Federal Open Market Committee are watching very, very carefully. Uh, I think it's manageable, but I, we're going to keep watching it to uh, keep confirming that judgment. Good. Um, so another question, uh, in your opinion, what are the three subsector, subsectors of our, our economy that will outperform in the next three to five years? Oh, I wish I knew. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, listen, there, there, are, there are some natural trends that are going on. I guess I'll start, I'll start first uh, with a, a big trend. Uh, climate change yeah. uh, is a huge issue in the world. It's a big issue, by the way, in Texas. Texas. Floods, droughts, uh, hurricane intensity is increasing. If you believe in the National Climate Estimate, and I just wrote something about this, we just went through the entire National Climate Estimate in detail. If you believe it's even close to being correct, uh, you're going to have water levels increasing. We're going to have a a lot more extreme weather events. I think there's enormous commercial opportunity for companies and U.S. could be the leader in this, and in many cases has been the leader in coming up with technologies to address these issues. So that would that would be an example of one. Uh, obviously, there's a whole bunch of other industries. There's no doubt technology, technology-enabled disruption, all all in, innovation is going to uh, keep developing and accelerating at rates that are hard to imagine. I just want to make sure. Uh, there'll be plenty of growth and plenty of industry opportunity. And I think there'll be plenty of jobs, by the way. My worry is unless we prove education, you're going to have the haves and you're going to have the have-nots. And wealth and income inequality are going to widen unless we address this education issue and do it uh, now. Right. I agree. Um, and I know you're involved with the Draper um, Venture Funds. I am. I'm and, honored to be part of right, Bill right, Draper, right. Robin so, Richards, and we so have a great team, that, some of them here. So through that, what do you see are the social uh, innovations that are coming out that we should be thinking about? So for those who don't know uh, DRK, we've been doing this for a double-digit number of years, um, and we... Um, 
we only work on early stage nonprofits. Uh, we put a managing director for three years on each nonprofit that we back. Uh, we back them for three years. And the, the one thing I would say about ideas, we're open architecture and that we've learned, and Bill can attest to this, that the best ideas we don't come up with. No. We probably get a thousand proposals a year. We screen them and we've learned to be open-minded and we've gotten, we've backed some incredible organizations that have, have come up with ideas we would have never thought of. And I think we realize the power of the social entrepreneur. What we try to do is pick every year the, you know, 25 or 30 best ideas, pick great leaders, yep. pick models that we think make an impact. And then we get involved and we try to back them. It's hard to be a social entrepreneur, but most of the best ideas, I can't think of many, weren't honestly ours. They came from social entrepreneurs who approached us, and we got educated by them. You know, I would love your perspective on leadership, because uh, whether it's a social entrepreneur or the leaders of our own country, what are the qualities that you believe we really need to have in those leaders? So... uh, I've mentioned if I, it, it, what a leader does, and uh, it's pathetic because I, I used to teach this, so I wrote a book on this subject, so I'll spout some of the stuff I've written. The most important thing a leader does is uh, put him or herself in the shoes of a decision maker, think and act like an owner, mm-hmm. uh, think through all the constituencies, figure out what you believe, and act in a way that adds value to others. And in doing all that, the most important thing a leader can learn to do is ask good questions, be open to learning, and you've got to be willing to work with others and work through others. If you're going to try to do everything yourself, you could make some progress, but you're not going to make that big an impact. And so we try to work with entrepreneurs constantly, and I, in my previous life, work with leaders, and including what I do now, to try to get people to work with others, empower others, um, figure out how to bring in others um, um, to share their vision and work together to, to, to make an impact. But the most important thing a leader can do to do that is to ask questions, be willing to be confident enough to ask questions, change your mind, admit when you were wrong, uh, be open to learning. Um, and I think if you can do that, you've got a heck of a chance. And conversely, when I see leaders fizzle out, Normally, the number one reason they fill out, they think they got all the answers. They, they, they're already past needing to ask questions, and they think they can do it themselves. That's usually a sign of trouble. And, uh, yeah. and I'll leave it at that. Uh, so yeah, we, try to help, yeah the we try to help people <laughs> to, to take a different approach. Good, good. Um, let's go to regional economy, Texas economy. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about the oil and gas, but could you talk a little bit more in general about where you see yeah. oil and gas going? Yeah, and I'll mention this one thing about Texas, which may surprise people. The, the energy business is now about 8.5% of GDP, 8, 8.5% of GDP oh. for the state of Texas. You say, well, that, that sounds low. Yeah, it is lower. It's a lot lower than it's been it historically. Be, right? The story of Texas is a story of diversification and migration of people and firms to the state. So I mentioned workforce growth is slowing in the United States. One of the things Texas has got going for it is migration. State uh, population has gone from 22 million 10 years ago on its way to 29 million. And believe it or not, over the next 20, 25 years, we think the population of Texas is going to be 40 million people. And so we've got the most valuable thing you can have, 
which is we're a magnet for people and firms. And so the, the industries become much more diversified. So Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, Houston, we've got big tech industries and very broad. If you ask just about the energy business, the main thing I would just tell you about energy is um, on the one hand, global supply and demand, we believe at the Dallas Fed is in rough balance. So when I got in this job in 15, we were oversupplied globally. So we remember famously OPEC and the Saudis decided to increase production and we had oversupply and the price plummeted. Uh, Our view today is we're in a rough balance. So why is the the price is a little more depressed? Because slowing global growth means slowing demand. So estimates of global energy growth are going like this. And so if you have a global slowdown, you're going to have a it's, it's consistent with a lower price of oil. And that's what we're seeing. And um, uh, the shale, though, has become uh, the key marginal producer, incremental supply producer in the world. Uh, Texas by itself would probably be the fourth or fifth largest energy producing country in the world. Uh, and we think the Permian Basin is going to grow dramatically. But we don't ironically think it's going to be enough to keep up with global demand growth. Really? Uh, yes. In the short run, though, demand, because of slowing, is a big issue. If you look out five to ten years, we think the world is more likely to be undersupplied than oversupplied because shale is growing, but the first-year decline curve is so big, 70%, you've got to drill more and more and more and more, and it's going to be tough to keep up production growth given that decline curve. And so we just, ha- we, we just have to keep it in mind in the out years. We need aggressive development of alternative, alternative energy, wind, solar. Even with that, we think there's a reasonable chance the world could be undersupplied. So is Texas focusing on those alternative energies at this point? Or? Texas is the, largest solar, is, is the largest wind producing state in the oh. country. We have a big and growing solar uh, in, industry. And it's unusual to talk to a private equity firm in energy or actually an energy company today that is not working on developing alternatives. That would surprise people. That does surprise me. And in fact, it's unusual to meet an energy company today that is not actively looking at things like sequestration and trying to reduce their carbon footprint. And you probably can't supply an energy company today unless you have a greenhouse gas emissions target. Uh, that's, that was news to me, but I've learned that and, uh, probably news to most people outside uh, the industry. Well, you know, one of the attractions of, uh, Texas is zero tax rate at the state level, yeah. right? Yes. And a lot of that was because it was funded by the oil and gas companies. It helps if you, it helps to have an energy industry. But now yes. that you've got what they represent 7% of the 8%, but it's enough to is build a rainy day. Yeah. The rainy day fund for the state of Texas is exceeds $10, $10 billion. Wow. Texas, because of not just energy, but population growth. This is what worries me about the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. 35 to 40 states in this country, population growth is flat to down. I come from Kansas. Population trends in Kansas are three two nine three one two nine, and it's been that way. Texas is growing. And so we've got plenty of money to deal with education on other issues. What I worry about is the 35 or so other states in the country, if we don't grow the population and their population growth is declining, they've got underfunded state pensions and they're taking money from education and the key things we need to be increasing in order to deal with this problem. Population growth is not talked about nearly enough in this country. It is critical to the United States.
And then you cover New Mexico and Louisiana and those other states. How are they doing? They are doing, they've got, they've got more problems, more like the yeah. rest of the country. Right. Population growth is, is sluggish. Uh, and what you find, if you go to any small town, one of the good things about being in this district, I go to a rural area almost every week. And a typical small town in the United States will have an unemployment rate in the twos. And the most prevalent thing that the business leaders will tell you, they can't find workers, including to work at restaurants or convenience stores. They can't find skilled workers. And they're wrestling uh, with the the fact that their kids, when they do graduate from high school and or local college, leave to go to bigger cities. So this is going on all through the United States. And I would say Louisiana and New Mexico are examples where they're primarily smaller cities are dealing with this trend. Yeah, there's a mass exodus for many of those uh, states and cities, right? There is. It could reverse, but it starts to be a downward cycle where uh, you don't have a local bank at some point. You don't have good health care. Grocery stores. Yep, all of that. It starts to be a downward cycle. And again, this is a symptom of if if population growth is sluggish, it puts more pressure on these small towns to attract and keep work workforce. And I'm seeing it everywhere I go uh, in my district. Yeah. And I'm hearing about it through all my peers uh, when, I, and when I'm at the Federal Open Market Committee. This is a nationwide issue. Um, so we've got just a few minutes left. Could you talk a little bit about the Federal Open Market process and how yeah. does that work? So we meet eight times a year formally. Uh, we have a number of meetings in between informally. Uh, but w- So every six weeks, I go to D.C. on a Sunday night. And on Monday, we usually have committee meetings between the presidents and the governors. Tuesday morning, we start uh, what's called the Federal Open Market Committee. Uh, starts at, say, 9 o'clock on Tuesday morning. I spend, several, I spend at least two or three weeks preparing for it. And so does everybody else. And we walk into that room uh, ready. And uh, we usually get uh, some presentations from our staff. And then each of us talks for 10 minutes. Each president and governor talks for 10 minutes. The chair, either Janet Yellen or now Jay Powell, goes last and gives our view on day one of what uh, economic conditions are in the United States and the world. Okay. Then we go have dinner together uh, (laughs) Tuesday night. On Wednesday, we start again, first thing in the morning, and each of us again goes around the room and talks for 10 minutes, and we each give our view on what we think is appropriate monetary policy for the United States and give our recommendation. The chair goes last. In the last 17 seconds of the meeting, we vote, and then we make a decision, and at 2 o'clock that afternoon, we publicly announce that decision. Does it have to be unanimous? It is, does not have to be unanimous, and very often it is not unanimous. And we have the thing that I like about the group: we have lots of debate, disagreement. Uh, nobody's trying to get promoted. Uh, nobody, nobody wants that top job. Well, right? no, nobody. <laughs> the, the, basically, we go in trying to represent our district and do whatever is best for the United States without regard to political considerations. Political influence is divorced from what we're doing. And we're just trying to debate out what is the right thing to do. And we try to go, I try to go into the meeting, everybody else does with an open mind. I'm trying to persuade people as we're debating, and they're trying to persuade me. And it's actually, I've been very impressed 
if, with the process to the point where if you could see what I get to see every day at the Fed and the quality of that debate and preparation, I think you'd be you'd be impressed, and I've been impressed with um, with the job the central bank does. That's great. So we asked a little. I asked you in the green room behind there. Uh, are there term limits on the uh, Fed chairs? And if there are, what is it? And so it's a series. It's a series of five-year terms, and then there's retirement age. Okay. And so, for example, for me, that retirement age would be in the approximately seventy. And so I'm in the middle of my first five-year term. I'm four years in. Uh, if I do another term, that would start in 2021 and then carry on for another five years. And that's true of everyone around the, uh, the table. The governors uh, have longer terms, but the history has been, ironically, that the presidents stay much longer than the governors. The governors have been, some of them have been academics who stay for two or three years and then go back there to their academic position. The bulk of the people around the Federal Open Market Committee table are PhD economists. I'm one of the uh, outliers, unusual ones. And so um, uh, that's been a factor for some of the governors. Yeah. Would you do it again? Sure. Yeah. No, it's been, it's been a great experience. I was, I was kidding around as we were sitting there in the, in the room saying, I finally, now I finally understand the U S economy. And, and, you know, you'd say how could that be? You know, I was an investment banker and, and a senior person in the investment bank and we had economists and we had big multi-division global efforts. But I think I've learned that the way I thought about the economy as a business person and the way I look at it and trying to understand it in this job I realize the drivers are somewhat different than I thought. And I think there's a natural tendency, and I was guilty of this as a business person. If my business is doing well, the economy must be doing well. <laughs> and what I've learned is that not, is not necessarily the case. And one of the things I had to learn in this job is what are, what are the key drivers of the economy? And they may be different than the key drivers of a particular business. Right, right. So we have a few minutes to wrap it up. What, uh, what do you want to leave us with? as we go out in the world and be an advocate for. So the one thing I do say um, uh, in, in the 11th district, uh, and I did this before this in my role as a professor at Harvard, um, and I try to do it as a business person. I think the problems of the world in the next 25 years, uh, for better or worse, not going to be solved by the government. Uh, I know I'm shocking you here. <laughs> and the re- one of the reasons is, Government doesn't have the many cases doesn't have the money. I think a lot of the problems are going to be solved by private citizens, business leaders, people in this room. One of our the reasons that I went in with Bill Draper and Robin Richards and a great team on Draper Richards Kaplan. I believe that private citizens are going to have to increasingly in the future do more to see problems in their community. Say I can do something about it. Take ownership and try to make a positive impact in the world. I think the country is full of millions of people who do that every day, but but I think um, I I think that's leadership, uh, and I think it's critical that uh, people take the opportunity to find an area that they have a passion for away from just the, their business day to day, where they can help in the community and. Uh, and step up and take action. I've tried to do it by going to the Fed, but I think still the most important things we could do are not in my official position, but what I do out in the community. And I think that's true for a lot of people here in this audience and listening to this. So I'd encourage them. The country needs it uh, probably more than ever. And so um, um, it's important that we all go out and do that. 
I, I think you're right. And, and, you know, many of the businesses are starting to do that. The business roundtable just talked about whether it's controversial or not in some areas. Yeah. The companies need to have a broader perspective than just shareholders. It includes the environment, the community, yes. the employees. And I think a lot of what, for me, what the business roundtable said for me is actually was just an affirmation of what most businesses have already been, been doing. doing. And so one of the things I know many of those businesses around in the business roundtable do, there's what the business does and you have to worry about impact on the community, but then individually, many of the leaders on the business roundtable personally away from their business are very active leaders and trying to make a positive impact in their communities. But uh, we worked on a project at Harvard called the U S competitiveness project which you may have heard of, which defined competitiveness not by how much money companies are making. That alone isn't doesn't define competitive. It's what's the impact on the commons? What's the impact on the communities? And by that measure, uh, U.S. Competitiveness Project found that most of the commons in the United States, that includes education, access to health care, is declining. And if that happens, we're losing competitiveness. So I think I was glad to see what the Business Roundtable said, either through businesses or through us individually, we've got to focus on improving the commons the, away from our businesses if we're going to improve health, you know, prosperity of our, of our kids and grandkids and of our country. Right. And start to solve that income inequality gap is what you're talking about. Yeah, which is right. getting worse, not better, actually. Right, right. I want to thank our guest speaker Thanks today, so thank Mr. You. Robert Kaplan. I hope, I hope you've all enjoyed our conversation today. I'm Evelyn Dilsaver, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thanks, Evelyn. Thank you. Thank you, Evelyn. Nice oh, my God, that's good.